John chapter 9. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed, and came seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him, How were thine eyes opened? He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed, and I received sight. Then said they unto him, Where is he? He said, I know not. They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He said unto them, He put clay upon mine eyes, and I washed, and do see. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. They say unto the blind man again, What sayest thou of him, that he hath opened thine eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called his parents of him that had received the sight. And they asked him, excuse me, and they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who ye say was born blind? How then doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not, or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him, he shall speak for himself. These words spake the parents, because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed had all agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore said his parents, He is of age, ask him. Then again called they the man that was blind, and said unto him, Give God the praise, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Then said they unto him again, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, ye did not hear. Wherefore would ye hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses, for as this fellow we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, Why, herein is a marvelous thing, that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. 
Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would send your Spirit unto us, that we might see and behold the wonderful works of Christ and all the things that he is teaching us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, well, this is a, I, we read a lot this morning, and our deacon read John chapter 3 this morning, most of it anyway, because you can take that, the things that took place, or the Lord says in John chapter 3, and you can plug it over this. Those two are, these two are intrinsically related, uh, one with each other, in terms of the things that Nicodemus said, in terms of the things that the Lord said about the Holy Ghost, and in terms about him being the light of the world and how he's going to bring that light to bear on people's hearts and reveal what is in them. So as we look at this section here, we're going to appreciate the things that we read in John chapter 8 and other places, but in particular John chapter 8, it flows nicely into this section because the Lord is going to shine his light on the hearts of these individuals that are in there. We know that in Hebrews 4.13 it says that all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The Lord knows what's in everybody's heart. He knows what everybody thinks. He knows what you're going to do before you do it. But not only does he know what you're going to do and what you have done, he knows the why. He knows what our motivations are. And therein lies our sin, is in our motivation. Not only do we sin for the things that we actually do, but we sin when we, do, when we think we're doing good things because our motivation is wrong. We're, we're doing something to aggrandize ourselves and something to present, if you will, good works before God. So he knows all of that. And so he knows what the motivations are. Um, so we should be able to uh, appreciate that. So in John chapter 3, verse 20, he had said that he was going to, for everyone that doeth evil, hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved or be discovered or be opened up. And that's what's going to take place here, is the Lord's going to shine that light right on the heart of these individuals um, by virtue of the things, uh, of the healing of this particular blind man. And it's going to reveal who they are. What he's going to prove is he's going to prove that they are, in fact, of their father, the devil, like he has really already done back in John chapter 8. I shared with us in the past that what they did to that woman was to set her up. And essentially, they were setting her up to have her killed with the intent of... Um, uh, proving or tripping uh, Jesus up here. It says that they brought her forward uh, in order to uh, try him. 
Tempt him. Verse 6 of John 8. This they said, tempting him. So they have set up this woman, they have brought her forward, and they would murder her to get to him. Very much like Satan did to, uh, to Eve. He killed Eve to get to Adam, and of course it's to undermine the works of um, God here. So he's going to prove to them that they are the fa- of their father, the devil. In John chapter 8, verse 41, he says, Ye do the deeds of your father, meaning your father is the devil. Verse 44, Ye are of your father, the devil. And the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So the Lord's going to prove again for our benefit, and really it's for their benefit too, even though they don't understand that, that he reveals to them that their nature is really of Satan and certainly not of God. And as he sets these things before us, it's going to become manifest that they cannot hear the truth. They cannot hear it. And John, again, 8.45, he says that. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. They would have believed a lie if he'd told it to them. But because he tells them the truth, they do not hear it. Verse 47, he that is of God heareth God's words. They're not going to hear what he has to say. Again, proving that they are not of God. He says, he that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. It's like talking to a wall. They don't hear it. And we know that the Lord, as we talked about last week, I think that's Proverbs twenty twelve, where it's the Lord who has made the hearing ear and the seeing eye. God has to give us ears to hear, and he has to give us eyes to see him, even if you're physically blind which we'll see manifest itself out here. But as we have seen many times in Scripture, um, that Jesus is and was a stumbling block to the Jews. They have their eyes on Moses, they have their eyes on the law, and so as they're walking uh, towards that, that goal, they trip over Christ, who is right in front of them. And we read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. These men are wise in the ways of the world. They are prudent in the ways of the world. And yet Christ is right there. They cannot see him. He's doing marvelous works and they do not attribute those works to God. I have no idea what they attribute it to because they cannot deny that the work was done, and yet they declare him to be a sinner, and they also declare that if he was a sinner, he could, do, he could not do what he's doing, and yet he's doing it. So they're just in a loop in their head. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Uh, it's a rhetorical question, but the answer is yes. He has made foolish the wisdom of this world. For after that, in the wisdom of God... The world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The Jews require a sign. God gave them sign after sign after sign after sign, all through the Gospels, including the sign of Jonah, where Christ himself would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, and yet he would raise from the dead. He gave them all the signs, and yet they believed not. So as the Greeks seek after wisdom, Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. And so that's where we see ourselves here in terms of God giving them a sign. Jesus is nothing but a stumbling block for them, but yet we see the power of God manifest in Christ in the terms of the things that he does. 
In spite of all the things that happen here, we're going to see that they reject God. They don't know God. They don't like God. As a matter of fact, they hate God. And we're going to read that later in John 15. They reject Christ, whom God sent. And they're going to reject this blind man, whom Christ has sent. So you and I are rejected by the world because the world doesn't like Christ. And the world hates Christ because it hates, hates God. It hates the one who sent him. So all of these things are related. So we're going to see that... Um, manifest itself uh, in this section as well here. And at the end of it, we're going to see that they are judged by Christ for doing so, for their rejection of that individual, for their rejection of Christ, and for their rejection of God. God will judge them for it. And as we've shared with you in the past, um, to whom God has given a little then much is required of them in terms of revelation. If God has revealed himself to this nation, he's going to require that they appreciate and understand that the, the truths that he, have set, that he has set before him. And he shares that with us when he talks about how it, would, uh, it will fare better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it is going to be for them. Sodom and Gomorrah did not have the revelation. They did not have the benefit of God uh, revealing himself to them as Jerusalem has. And so he goes through there and says, Sidon and Tyre and, and even Sodom will fare better than they will fare. So if we take a step back here, and I, and I like to do this because I think you get more from scriptures when you can appreciate this. We know that in uh, Hebrews chapter 1 that it tells us in verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is a visible manifestation of the living God. Um, it says that, um, when I get to Hebrews... Hebrews chapter 1, I'm looking for verse 3, that Christ is the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person. So we know, and we've seen this many times, where Christ, um, when you see Christ, you've seen the Father. He says that. To know Christ is to know the Father. But we know that God is a trinity. It is the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So we ought to be able to see manifestations, and we ought to be able to see the work of the Holy Spirit when we consider the things that Christ does, because he is the manifestation of God. So in John chapter 3, verse 8, that our deacon read for us this morning, it talks about the work of the Holy Spirit. It's like the wind, it says. In verse it says, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And you're going to see that here, or you should see that here as we read through us here. Everybody's blind here. The scribes and Pharisees are blind, and we have a blind man set before us here. And John chapter 8, verse 59, closed out in that way. It closed out with them rejecting Jesus, and yet we're going to see him continue to be merciful. But verse 59 in John chapter 8 closes out and says, Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. We see that he's behaving like the Holy Ghost, and he's done this a number of times. He shows up on the scene. There he is. He speaks. He teaches. They hear him, and then he disappears when they uh, want to take him and uh, either make him a king or take him and, and, and stone him and kill him or take him in Luke chapter 4 and try to throw him off the brow of a hill to kill him. He just walks right through him. So he's behaving like the Holy Ghost in that regard. They don't know where he comes from, and they don't know where he goes to. And I've lost track of how many times the Lord has specifically told him that the Father sent him, and that doesn't register with him. They don't know where he comes from, and he walks right through the midst of them. Now, 
The fact that he's going to send this individual to a pool also helps us appreciate the involvement of the Holy Ghost here because it's at the pool that he actually receives his sight. The Lord works on him. He goes to the pool and receives his sight. And so water can represent a couple of things in scriptures. One of the things it can represent is the Holy Ghost. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, Titus 3, 5, it says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done. This man is a beggar, blind beggar. He has done no works of righteousness. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So we can see that manifest in the life of this particular blind man, the Lord does a work on him and he washes and it's like the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. That's where he receives his sight. So the Lord is teaching us spiritual truths here through the lives of these individuals who certainly are real people and suffered real um, issues in their life, this fellow being blind from his birth. So in verse 2, they ask the question, who did sin? In verse 2, who did sin? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Now, he's a beggar. You would think that maybe they might want to offer him alms of some kind, but no, no. It's like he doesn't exist. You know, if you've ever um, been with somebody that's elderly, you kind of talk around them and not necessarily to them, so you don't necessarily enter into the, um, the things that they're suffering with. So they're kind of talking around him, and so they ask the question, who did sin? And that's a, that's a reasonable question, but there's a couple of issues with it. Um, one of which it does have a historical precedent. And you'll recall the sin of Achan when uh, Joshua was leading the Israelites into the promised land. And uh, they were told not to take anything from the city of Jericho. And Achan did so. He took gold, silver, and a goodly Babylonian garment. And a result of his sin, when they went to go take the city of Ai, without consulting God, without taking Joshua with them, they lost that battle and uh, suffered. Um, some of them were slain. And so the question is, why did that happen? And the Lord tells them, well, because of sin. So the nation can suffer as a whole because of sin. And so the solution to that sin was um, confession. And then the wrath of God had to be satisfied. And the wrath of God was satisfied when they took Achan and his wife and all his sons and all his daughters and all his sheep and all his cattle and all his possessions and put them in a big pile and stoned everybody to death and burnt it all. So everybody in that family, the children, suffered for the sins of the father. So this is a reasonable question for them, saying, is he suffering because of something his parents did? Now, in a broad context here, I want us to appreciate that in a national context, that is true as well. This nation, and you and I and everybody here, all of us Christians, are suffering because of the sins of this nation, because of the sins that other people do. This nation as a whole has put God out, and a result of that is, I think we can see God removing his hand of grace from this country, and a result of that, we are all uh, beginning to feel the effects of that, and we are all going to suffer. Uh, the Lord says in the Proverbs, when the wicked rule, you know, the people mourn. And so it is breaking our hearts. It, we are mourning over what the Lord is doing in this country as he removes his hand of grace from that. However, big picture context here. This man is blind um, for God's glory. He says that, but also we know that um, things like this happen because of the sin of Adam and the sin of Eve. We have people born with various deformities. Uh, we have all sorts of issues in this world, the emotional psychological and physical because of sin. So in a big picture context, that is a true statement. But I don't suffer 
because my dad did something in particular. The Lord doesn't do that. He doesn't impute my father's sins to me. Um, I bear the consequences of, of my own uh, sins in an eternal sense. Granted, if my dad was an alcoholic and uh, he uh, engaged in things that were variants from the law and beat me as a child, well, then I'm going to engage in behavioral activities which are not unlike my father. And I've seen that in certain members of my family where they uh, suffer... Um, because they engage in the same activities that their parents do. Raise a man up in the way he shall go, and when he's old, he shall not depart from the ways thereof. You raise your kid up as a crook, they're going to suffer the consequences of that. So there is a relationship here. So this question is not without, um, without warrant. But there is a self-righteous thing that we can get involved in here, and that is this, when they say, is he suffering for, him, for his own sins? And that we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 12, it, it talks about comparing ourselves by ourselves and comparing ourselves with other Christians. He says in the second half of verse 12, he says, But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. You should never compare yourself with the Christian uh, next to you, um, the fellow sitting next to you, thinking to yourself, well, I'm faring better in a material sense or even in a physical sense because I'm more righteous than they are. That's an easy trap to fall into because that's, uh, that's not how it works. God works with each person individually. And if they're not doing as well as you, you should not think to yourself, well, it's because that they've engaged in some form of sin. Now, clearly, we can appreciate that when we look at Lazarus and the rich man. We have Lazarus, a beggar, at the rich man's door, and he's got dogs licking his wounds. Which of those two men was God pleased with? The rich man who suffered great material prosperity? No, he ends up in hell. But with respect to the beggar, he ends up in the bosom of Abraham. He ends up in glory. So what your, what your material blessings are in this life is not a reflection of God's um, um, spiritual blessings that you will receive through the work of Christ. So you need to decouple that. Never compare yourselves with um, another Christian in that regard. When we measure ourselves, as it says in Ephesians chapter 4, we measure ourselves against Christ. In verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about, till we all come into the unity of the faith and the fullness of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Christ is our standard by which we are compared. And again, by virtue of God's grace, he imputes his righteousness to us. So as it says in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, I think 21, where we are, have the righteousness of God because of what he has done. So, any event, don't go down that road. Be, be careful that, that you don't do that. This man, the Lord says here, was made for God's glory. Neither did this man sin nor his parents, but the works of God should be manifest in him. And we can see that with respect to the life of Job. What did Job do to warrant uh, all of the ill things that uh, came his way? Well, he did nothing. It was, it was simply an exercise to prove that a man will not, um, uh, will not sin against God uh, so long as God keeps him. Um, so your material prosperity and your material stage in life does not have anything to do with your relationship with God. It is God that draws, him, draws us to himself, and it is God that keeps us with himself. And so Job did not curse God, though he was encouraged to do so um, by his wife. Now, so... With respect to this idea that this is all for God's glory, I want you to notice the conspicuous of the use of the word clay. 
The word clay appears a number of times in here. Verse 6, when the Lord had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay. He put clay on the man's eyes. Twice in the verse 6, once in verse 11, he says again, a man that is called Jesus made clay. Verse 14, we were told that Jesus made clay. And verse 15, clay. Well, who works with clay but the potter? It's the potter that works with clay. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse um, 8, it says, But now, O Lord, thou art our father, we are the clay, and thou art potter, and we are all the works of thy hand. And so we should appreciate what's taking place here with respect to the glory of God, that God has made this individual, that we might learn something about God's sovereign grace in the midst of a wicked nation. Now, in Romans chapter 9, this again is set before us, but the Lord expands it a little, little bit here. We pick it up in verse 21 of Romans chapter 9, and he says, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? The answer is yes. God has the right to do that. He can make one vessel unto honor and another vessel unto dishonor. Verse 22, obviously, who is the vessel of honor here? It's the blind man. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endureth with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? All throughout the Gospels, I hope we can appreciate God's patience. He's surrounded by vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, in particular the scribes and the Pharisees that we see here in this group here. And yet we see him to be very patient long-suffering, and he endures their um, manners. Verse 23, And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath afore prepared unto glory. This blind man is a vessel of glory that God hath known afore before time. And we're going to see his, the riches of his mercy manifest itself on this individual. And so here we see, as I mentioned before, in John uh, eight fifty nine, that Christ is rejected. And yet, he's going to come and, and, and um, have mercy on this individual here, and all for his glory. Now, as always, when we look at the scriptures, we always see the tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. God's going to act in a very sovereign way here, and yet the blind man's going to get up, and he's going to obey God. He's going to do what Christ tells him to do. Now, obviously, the blind man represents us. We are beggars. There was nothing to um, the Lord we brought. We simply cling to his cross. That's from the hymn. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We bring nothing to the table. All our works of righteousness are as filthy rags before the Lord. This fellow does not even cry out for mercy. And yet the Lord works in him to will and to do of his good pleasure. So I'm going to give all of the glory to God. But yet we're going to see it work it out in his life. Christ Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. And we're going to see that he's the author of that when we get down to the last couple of verses of John chapter 9 here, uh, particularly verse 35 and down. Now, what do we see the man do? We see him walk in obedience. The Lord puts clay on his eyes, tells him what to do, and he walks in obedience. And First Samuel, verse 15, talks about the necessity of obedience. Samuel is talking to um, King Saul, and he says, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord. 
Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness. It is as iniquity and idolatry. And he says, because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. That's Samuel speaking to King Saul. The Lord rejected Saul. He was not obedient to the Lord. God is going to reject this nation, and he's going to reject these people in particular because they're not obedient unto him. Simply stated, the Lord commands everyone to believe on his son, Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. If you don't do that, then you will be rejected. Now, again, looking at this blind man, he does not understand what has happened to him. He doesn't know the how or the who of it. And that comes out throughout the course of this. Eventually, he gets the who of it because somebody must have told him. Jesus did did these things. But that's what we saw in uh, John chapter 3. I think it was verse 8. Just like the Holy Ghost, don't know where it comes from and you don't know where it goes to. And no sooner does he receive his sight, as a young Christian does, and immediately his faith is tried. And that trial is going to escalate as we go through this section, and that's what the Lord does to perfect our faith. You believe, and your faith is tried. And what does he do in verse 11? He confesses Jesus. In verse 11, he says, when answering the question, how did this happen? He says, a man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said unto me, go into the pool of Siloam and wash And I went and washed, and I received my sight. So he's obedient, and no sooner does he confess Jesus than what? He gets an audience with the Pharisees. (laughs) Um, And so in the course of this audience with the Pharisees, they don't want any glory to be given to Christ. They have already stated that if anybody would believe on Jesus, then they would put them out of the synagogue. They would excommunicate them from the synagogue. And that is a very big um, threat. It's a very big tool to wield over somebody who believes that their eternal life is rooted in them being a member of the, I'm going to use the term church here because the Catholics have done that for years. uh, They will tell you that your salvation is rooted being a member of the church, having been baptized into the Catholic church, and that you must be a continuing member in the church. If you are not, if they excommunicate you, then they are essentially telling you that whatever salvation you might have thought you have You don't have that anymore. And so by kicking them out of the synagogue, they would uh, excommunicate them from the commonwealth of Israel, from the blessings, and I'm going to put that in quote, that they perceive that they have. But again, as we talked about last week, they are so blind as to appreciate that they are under the um, bondage of the Romans, though they don't appreciate that. So um, as they bring him in here and they continue, he continues to confess Christ, um, they bring his family in because they're trying to prove that this did not happen by the hand of Jesus. Now, there's lots of witnesses that they could have drawn in here. We see that in verse 8 and 9, that there were a number of people that had seen it, the neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen that he was blind, said, is this not he that sat and begged? They know who he was, and they know that he can see now. Some said, he is, that is he. Others said, he is like him. So, They could have suborned lots of witness. They're bringing his family in here. He's witnessing for himself. And there was neighbors that all see this. But they don't bring in anybody except his family. And they try to prove, convince uh, the family, I guess, that he was not their son and that he was not blind. But they hold to it. But what's sad here is that they won't stand with him about the testimony. They simply say, ask him. He's an adult, and it shares with us here that the reason they, uh, they don't do that is because they feared the Jews. They were afraid that they would be excommunicated. And so it is with respect to um, 
Christians under similar circumstances. No one will stand by you. It's not always true, but in a false church, no one will stand by you. Um, And that was their case there. With respect to um, the Apostle Paul, he says that of himself, and of course, that was the case with Christ. In 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17, this is when he's in Caesar's house and he's making an account for what his ministry has been. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray, God, that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, this is verse 17, notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known and that the Gentiles might hear and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. So we should appreciate that though men are not faithful, and if you've ever been in a case where you are in a false church and you're the one that's bringing forth the truth, that people are not going to stand by with you because they fear loss of the fellowship of this um, um, social gathering, and they will not stand with you. And the results that you experienced ought to be the same as Christ and ought to be the same as uh, Paul suffered. You will be put out. They will not stand with you. And uh, we read about that in First Peter. First Peter talks about that um, in chapter 4. In chapter 4, pick it up in verse 12, he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. Why would you, as a Christian, expect to be treated differently than Jesus was treated? But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, Happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you, and on their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. And so we see that as this um, man who was formerly blind goes in and speaks before the Pharisees, that he continues to confess Christ because we know that God is giving him um, the grace to do that very thing, that the Lord is standing with him. Um, but nevertheless, they will not receive his testimony. His family doesn't stand with him. None of the neighbors come in and testify, but only he himself stands up, and he does exactly what they tell him to do in verse 24. In verse 24, they are frustrated that they can't undermine his testimony, and it says, Then again called they the blind men, the man that was blind, and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. They are declaring Christ Jesus to be a sinner, but they're telling him to give God praise the praise. In verse 25, he doesn't uh, take the bait, if you will, but he holds to the truth that he holds fast to Christ. And he does, in fact, give God the praise. Now, why do I say he gives God the praise? Because he's holding fast to Christ. And who is Christ? He's God Almighty. In John chapter 8, verse 58, the Lord Jesus had declared himself to be God to these people. In verse 58, he says, Jesus saith unto them, I'm in John 8, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. He uses a term that exclusively applies to the name of God in um, Exodus chapter 4, when God told Moses who he was. I am. Jesus had declared himself to be God. Also in verses 35 through 37 of John chapter 9, if you look at that, Jesus is telling him, he tells this man that he is the Son of God. Doth thou believeth on the Son of God, in verse 35? Verse 37, thou hast both seen him, that would be the Son of God, 
and it is he, the Son of God, that talketh with thee. I can't imagine a clearer statement in the Bible where Jesus is declaring himself to be the Son of God. He's, he's telling this young man, you are talking to the Son of God right now. So this man was faithful to the Lord. He did not deny the Lord. The Lord does not deny him. Jesus has identified himself as the I am, and he's that, that he's the Son of God. And so this man is, in fact, giving God the glory. Now, how does this work out for him? Well, he's cast out of the church. He's cast out of the, the synagogue. And let me share this with you. That's a painful process if it's ever happened to you to be cast out of a church, but it's a good thing. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to find the door, but if they'll open it for you and throw you out of it, it's a good thing because you don't want to be uh, amongst the midst of people that, that don't give God the glory, that don't honor God, that don't appreciate and apprehend his truths, um, but would rather blaspheme him um, in ways that perhaps they don't understand that they're doing. But you don't want to be a part of that. So it's very good when somebody will show you the church, uh, show you the door in a church like that. So that was a good thing. Now, as we, having been cast out, of course, uh, he's cast out to Christ, and he has a conversation with Jesus. Now I'm down in verse 35, and I'm going to read 35 through 38 because the. Um, eternal truths that are taught in here are um, transparent to us who only speak English. If we could speak Greek and appreciated the verb tenses, uh, it would mean more to us. And so I'm going to try to bring that out here. In verse 35, it says, Jesus heard that he had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? That's verse there, believe here. That word believe there is in the present indicative active, meaning do you presently believe right now? That's what he's asking him. Dost thou believe? Do you believe right now? In verse 36 comes the answer. He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? Well, the word believe there is in a different Greek tense. It is in the aorist subjunctive active, which means a simple, undefined action. We don't know when it occurred, but it's a simple, undefined action. So um, who is he that I might believe, that I might have this simple, undefined action? Well, in verse 37, the Lord lays it open, or sets it open here for us. He says, And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. The word hast there, thou hast believed, is in the perfect indicative Active, which means the action took place some point in the past and it's continuing unto the present. This Jesus is telling this man, because Jesus knows what's in everybody's hearts, he knows that this man has believed on him in the past at some point and he's continuing to believe on him right now. You have seen me. Even though you've been physically blind, you have seen me in the past when he was physically blind. We get to verse 38 and the Lord says... And he said, I believe, and he worshiped him. That's in the present indicative active. That's the same um, tense that's used in verse 35. The answer is yes. You do believe. Dost thou believe? The answer is yes. You do believe in that way. He's believing in the present right now on the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord is helping us to appreciate the, these truths about how an individual, how a Christian, how their faith is manifest and how it eventually percolates up to the um, to the surface. And so uh, as is true with this individual, it is true for all the elect. We know that all the way back in John 6, 44, the Lord had said that no man can come unto me 
unless the Father which hath sent me draw him. So the Lord works in people's lives, and he draws them unto himself. And as he draws them unto himself, he's got to impart to them some measure of faith that they can do that, that they might see him and know him and appreciate who he is. And we read about that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. In Hebrews eleven six, it says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So you can't come to God, even though he says he draws you. He will draw you, but you won't come unless you believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So we see all of these things taking place kind of simultaneously in the heart of an individual. And that's what we see manifest here in terms of what has happened in this. The same thing that is taking place here in the latter verses of John is the same thing that the Lord said up in verse 56 of John chapter 8 with respect to Abraham. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. That's what he's just said to this blind man. Yeah, you saw it. You, bet you, you believe on me while you were yet blind. Well, obviously Abraham lived um, 2,000 years before Christ, plus or minus. <laughs> uh, but yet he saw Christ. He saw Christ's day. This man lives contemporarily with Christ. He's blind, and yet he can see Christ. And so it is as the Lord draws people unto them and imparts them a measure of faith so that they will believe that he is and that he can do the things that he says he can do, which means take his, your sins upon himself and impute his righteousness to you. So this man has spiritual sight and has had it while he was yet blind. And yet all of those individuals, the Pharisees that are there who have physical sight, they are spiritually blind. Even though Christ has done a work, which in their audience was told them that no man had ever done before. And so that's what we see in verse 39 through 41, where the Lord talks about how he has come to bring light. He is that light, and he has come to bring light to those that are blind and to blind those that have sight. And it says in verse 41, if ye were blind, ye should have no sin, meaning no sin of rejection. So in John chapter 15, the Lord has a few more words to say about that. And I'll read those. I'll read from verse 18 through 24 of John 15, and then we're done. It says, If the world hate you, meaning the disciples, meaning this blind man, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. And that's a warning, by the way. If you're in a ministry that's really popular with the world, it's not a godly ministry. These big box churches that have many, many thousands of people that draw people in, um, the world loves them. It's not godly. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, just as he did the spline man. Therefore, the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Well, we saw that with the blind man. He was cast out. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. In other words, if they love me, they're going to love what you have to say. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. No relationship with the Father, no relationship with the Son. They'll reject the ones he sent. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. There's no covering for it. Christ has come. He's manifested themselves to him. He's given him great signs and wonders, and yet they don't believe on him. 
He that hateth me hateth my father also. And then verse 24, if I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin, but now have they both seen and hated both me and the father. And this is what the Lord sets right at their feet here in terms of the things that he has done right in front of their eyes. They've seen it. They've rejected it. They are blind and they have no cloak and no covering for their sin. And as the Lord says in John 15, which is said here, he's doing works that have never been done before. To say nothing of him laying down his life by his own accord and taking it up himself by his own accord. Proving that he indeed is the Almighty. That he is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the one that has been sent to save his people from their sins. And yet they reject him. May it never be said of us that we are not obedient to the Lord because he has set so many truths in front of us. Amen. Amen.